when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy, so she named him Asher. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the field and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honour because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dina. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and it enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so that I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you and I will be on my way. 
You know how much work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favour in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He added, name your wages and I will pay them. Jacob said to him, you know how I have worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, when may I do something for my own household? What shall I give you, he asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-coloured lamb and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. And my honesty will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on the wages you have paid me, any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark-coloured will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. That same day he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them, and all the dark-coloured lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. Jacob, however, took fresh-cut branches from poplar, almond and plane trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they mated in, the, in front of the branches and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and dark-coloured animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals. Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so that they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. In this way, the man grew in this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. I don't know who has the biggest sense of humour, whether it was God for putting this passage in the scriptures or Michael, for making me preach on it. But here we are. So let's pray, hey? Our Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you uh, for bringing us together this evening. We thank you for your word and we thank you for this passage. We pray now that you would uh, help us to get clarity around what this has to offer, that we would make much of your character and much of your son our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, what does faith in God look like? Can we see it? Should we, able, should we be able to see in someone's actions whether they're a Christian or not? Will it be too subtle? Or if we can see it, is that them being too pious? 
What would our non-Christian neighbours expect to see when they look at someone who is a Christian? Well, we've seen a lot of Jacob over the last couple of weeks. He's a cunning, conniving, grasping and deceptive bloke who, along with a bit of help from his mum, strategizes and deceives constantly throughout his life. He's born clutching his brother's heel, which really sets the tone for his life, doing whatever he can to get ahead and grasping at the things that he desires. He diddles his brother out of his birthright. He steals the blessing from their father. But, as we saw last week, he is told by the Lord himself, in Genesis 30, verse 13, of the promise of blessing to him. And yet Jacob leans into that blessing in something of a distrustful way, always too happy to jump or to grasp at an option where it is of benefit to him. We saw this last week as he took the promises of God and he sort of origamied them into an if-then algorithm of trust in God. Then he kept on making opportune and selfish decisions. If he can see it and he wants it, he will grasp for it. And there's an eerie silence over this passage which doesn't condemn nor condone. Rather, it forces us to consider and to confront what Jacob's motives might be and to consider where his faith really lies. Now, this is tricky. And the questions that we have got last week and the discussions that I've heard about in Bible studies have alluded to exactly that. Is Jacob doing the right or the wrong thing here? How do you know when and when not to do something for fear that it is or isn't in the plans of God? Or let me put those questions another way. What does faith in God look like? Well, today's passage gives us another example of discomfort and shows the worst side of how we can do intimate relationships. It is not a nice passage. And yet God uses the machinations of it anyway, in spite of the main actors and their flaws. God is still able to bring forth his purposes and use what he has in front of him to accomplish his purposes and keep good on his magnificent promises. So to briefly recap, the blessing of Isaac went to Jacob in Genesis 27 and it was reaffirmed in Genesis 30 that we read last week. And it is in Genesis 30 that Jacob is now on his way to his uncle Laban's place on a gap year to find love on his mother's advice. Well, Jacob finds love. He finds a seven-year unpaid internship and he finds an uncle who is even more of a deceiver than he is. And because of that, a week after his wedding day, Jacob now appears to be married to two women who are also sisters, no less. What could go wrong? Well, 
Uncle Laban wants another seven years' work out of him. Jacob's not getting a twofer. Seven years for one wife, 14 years for two. Get back to work, Uncle Laban says. So what do you do? Now, Uncle Laban here appears nothing short of a villain, selling his daughters for a bit of hired help. Laban's deceitfulness is what no doubt has borne a generation of envy and jealousy, hatred and division. It is a mess. Can you imagine the dynamics of a marriage of three, let alone five, if you include the maidservants in there? It is awkward. It is resentful. And it can be downright nasty. And is most of the reason why most cultures around the world tend to stick with one wife. This is a mess. How could God possibly thread the needle through this one? I mean, we all end up in awkward situations from time to time, but this, well, this is next level. But thread the needle God does. For today's passage starts with the simple fact that God is gracious. He is compassionate to the outcast and the disowned. The Lord saw that Leah was not loved and so he caused, for, caused her to fall pregnant and have a son. We learn tragically that Rachel is barren, she can't have kids and so Leah, who was not loved, ends up having a son to Jacob. And she ends up having four sons to Jacob. They are Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah. You might recognise those names. They're the start of the 12 sons of Jacob. They're the genesis of the 12 tribes of Israel. But it must have been very, very difficult to be Rachel at this time. Your sister has not only married your husband as well, but has also given birth to four sons. That is years of sadness and disappointment and heartache. And so it is little wonder that at the start of chapter 30, she became jealous and she lashes out at Jacob. Give me children or I'll die, she says in Genesis 30 verse 1. Now, Jacob isn't really the main character in this part of the story. It is all about the wives and the children. But he does have an opinion. I'm not God. It is God who has kept you from having kids. What do you want me to do about it? Husband of the year, right there. He could have been a better husband, couldn't he? He could have made a better decision there, couldn't he? And so, in a classic case of deja vu we see Rachel offer up her maidservant to Jacob to progress her desire for a child. Now, as before in Genesis, this is a remarkably successful short-term strategy and Bilhah gives birth to two sons whom Rachel claims, Dan and Naphtali. Now, Leah sees the success of this course of action and, given that she is now having trouble bearing children anymore... She too gives her maidservant Zilpah to Jacob, who also bears two sons, Gad and Asher. For those counting, we're now up to eight sons. 
And it is worth pausing at this point to look at the meanings of the names of the sons. Because with each of these newborns, the meaning of the name is provided along with the reasoning by the mother or the mother who claims them. And it gives a deep insight into the relationship between these two sisters. This is by no means normal to be married to the same man. And these women are not heroes. We see clearly that they are human and they're responding to the situation that has been forced upon them. They're desirous, jealous, spiteful and ruthlessly competitive. Neither of them wrap themselves in glory, but to be fair, I'm not sure how anyone could under these kind of circumstances. Leah is yearning for Jacob to love her. Rachel is intensely jealous of her sister. The desires of both are laid bare. And the story about the mandrakes makes this all the more clearer. Reuben digs up some mandrakes and gives them to his mother Leah. Rachel wants some mandrakes and Leah responds in verse 15. Wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. It's all a bit bizarre, isn't it? And right now you're all just thinking, what the heck's a mandrake? (laughs) Well, a mandrake is a hallucinogenic plant that is thought to have fertility properties. You eat it or you smoke it or you boil it up, I'm not too sure, but folklore of the time suggests that it will increase your fertility. And that's heartbreaking because you can see exactly why Rachel wanted some, can't you? She will grasp at anything to have a child of her own. But we've also seen how Leah just wants her husband for herself. And so surprisingly, they come to an agreement. Rachel gets the mandrakes and Leah gets Jacob, all sweaty from a day's work in the field, hired for some mandrakes. But look at verse 17. At one and the same time as this bizarre swap was occurring, God was listening to the prayers of Leah. Two versions of the same event. God listened to Leah and she fell pregnant again. And there's a message in there. It is God who is in control and not the magic or the voodoo or the superstition about certain plants and their hallucinogenic or fertility properties. And so the sons keep coming. Leah gives birth to another two sons, Issachar and Zebulun. She then gives birth to a daughter, Dinah. She doesn't get much of a mention, but we read about her later in Genesis 34. Leah has now given birth to six sons and one daughter. And then, wonderfully, God intervened again. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, 
God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Finally. Barrenness is a tragedy and children are a blessing. And whilst Rachel had rested in the comfort of surrogacy until now, the Lord remembered her and finally she's given birth to a son named Joseph. And this passage finishes with a cryptic request that God may add another son, which is just as well, because we're only up to 11, which is not quite 12. But with the birth of Joseph, Jacob's seven years of bondage are almost complete, which is what kickstarts the next section. But let's dwell on this a little more before we move on. I mentioned a moment ago that Jacob was something of a passenger in this passage. This is about the struggle between Rachel and Leah and the birth of lots of children. And it is a real mess. I mean, sitting around the dinner table at night would have been horrendous, wouldn't it? The air heavy with jealousy and factions and fighting and spitefulness and ill feeling. What was... Laban thinking when he so willfully penned this future for his daughters by his sneakiness? Did he care more about his own fortune and getting some good help from Jacob, who had, we find out, increased Laban's flocks pretty magnificently? But Jacob is now very keen to get out. The seven years are up and that has signalled that it's time for him to head home. So the passage now changes tack. The wives and children take a back seat and now it is time for the sheep and the goats to get to sit in front. With his seven-year service done, Jacob approaches Laban and wants to leave. But Laban wants him to stay. Why? Well, because the Lord has blessed me because of you, he says in verse 27. And so we again get a story of Jacob's cunning. Laban's plot laid bare and a whole lot of on-heat sheep and goats. Basically, Jacob asks for all the multicoloured livestock, while Laban keeps the single-coloured ones. Agreed, there's not very many speckled or streaked livestock, so Laban reckons he's on to a winner, which is exactly where he likes to be. Now, Jacob must have known a thing or two about animal husbandry, and there must be some genetics in here, in what otherwise appears to be a little bit more voodoo or folklore or something going on here with sticks and water troughs and mating. But Jacob pretty much ends up with most of the livestock as they breed and become speckled or striped. Laban gets fleeced. I like that one. We find out in the next chapter that Jacob full well knew that it was the Lord who was doing this. Which brings to the surface again that through the cunning and the strategizing and the folklore myths, God is not hampered in his plans. He works in and through these things to bring about his purposes. Just as he is not hampered by a deal over mandrakes or fighting between two sisters over their mutual husband. 
God will come good on what he has promised, regardless of what happens on the ground. And Jacob is blessed and increased significantly, such that he grew exceedingly prosperous. And no doubt he was cunning and strategic, and some might say a little bit shifty. But on this occasion, in this passage, he was honest to the agreement that he had made with Laban. And many people would have been happy to see Laban being the butt end of this deal. It really is a triumph for Jacob. The deceiver deceives the deceiver. Justice is served and Jacob walks away a rich man. Now, why is this story here? Why is it even in the Bible? Because it does seem a little bit bizarre. But that is not a reason to write it off or to skip over it. Dwelling on these stories does us the world of good because in the bigger picture, it is quite significant. It is here in the Bible because it matters. There is something here that we learn about the character of God. There is something here that we learn about the plans of God. There is something here that we learn about us. See this? This is the beginning of the nation of Israel. It has been ruminating and gestating for generations, but we get going now. Twelve sons of Jacob, who himself is soon to be renamed Israel, who become the Old Testament people of God. Now, you may say correctly that only 11 sons have been born in this passage. Benjamin is hinted at at the end of the passage, but is not born until Genesis 35, the second child of Rachel, who then tragically dies in childbirth. This is the 12 sons of Jacob. The 12 tribes of Israel start here. There's a bit of complexity to this, but this is the start of the offspring, numerous as the stars in the sky. God is being faithful to his promises in his own timing and despite the mess. Now this is a messed up family too. There would appear to be nothing fun about the family dynamics of the past seven years. And whilst there was all sorts of mistrust and mistakes, deceit and mandrakes, God is able to use even this for the advancement of his plans and purposes for his people and to fulfil his promises. Now, I'm hopeful that that is a comforting truth for you. The fact is that God was and is sovereign over all things all of the time. And through these things, he is working his plans and purposes out and delivering on his promises. Even now, even through you and me and our messed up lives that most of us don't even know the half of, doesn't matter. God is sovereign, he is in control and he is good. Which is not to excuse our sinfulness. Paul speaks at length about this in Romans where he basically premises his argument with the fact that we don't understand or fully comprehend grace if we continue on sinning. 
God being sovereign and knowing the end game doesn't excuse the sin and certainly doesn't excuse sinful means to get there. God acknowledges our sin though. He knows that it is there and he knows that we can't shake it off and he knows the predicament we are in because of it. We do the wrong thing all the time. We grasp and deceive and then we try to justify it all away. He knows that sin is serious and it is what keeps us from him. And these stories remind us that God meets us in those circumstances, meets us in the mess. And he meets us in the mess in the person of Jesus, who was from the tribe of Judah, come into the world to do something about the sin of the world. Jesus is God's response to the mess of sin in the world. Jesus is God's way of ultimately blessing the people of Israel and the nations that they could have a restored relationship with God if they trust in the sufficiency of the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. God uses the mess. And Jesus came into this world to wade through it all and to sort it out. That is why we're reading about speckled lambs and feuding sisters, to demonstrate the incomparable capacity of God to work with what he has in front of him to bring about his plans and his purposes. And so I hope that that is a comfort. God knows about you, he knows about me and the messiness of our lives. He knows about it all. And he loves you and me anyway. And he gives us Jesus as a means by which the mess is accounted for. Now, it might still haunt us for the rest of our lives. It might still be there in the background. But it is accounted for. And it is forgiven. And so we can rest easy in Jesus. See here how the creator of the world so wonderfully does his thing. doesn't necessarily make it easier though this week or this afternoon we still wrestle with that question what does faith in God look like how do I know what to do well that is an excellent question to wrestle with but it's not there to cause us worry because if we're wrestling with that question that is a healthy thing to be doing that's why we have these weird passages in the Bible to chew on. God rewards faithfulness and not success. He sees the invisible motivations of our hearts and so if you are seeking to be faithful to the Lord, well that is being faithful to the Lord. He gives us wisdom, gives us his Holy Spirit and we don't have to worry because we can lay all our cares and concerns and decision points at his feet in prayer. There is much wisdom in the Bible about how to live and walk in faith. And so let's finish with just that. Galatians 5, 16 to 25. It says this. So I say, 
Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that nothing is too messed up for you to work through and that your plans are not thwarted by our sinfulness. Lord, thank you for Jesus who offers us forgiveness and restoration. Help us to live lives full of faith in you, filled and overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit. Amen.